Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that all the truths that we have been singing this morning are true about you. Jesus, you are holy, perfect. You are strong. You are kind. You seek after your lost sheep. We thank you that you have defeated the enemy of death. The war has already been won. We thank you for the hope that that gives us. And Lord, as we look at the way that you are good in the midst of pain and suffering, would we trust you? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In our passage this morning, we get to see the love that Jesus has for his people. There is no one who loves like Jesus. Jesus' love is perfect. He says this in John 15 when he's describing what great love looks like. He says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. Jesus does that. Jesus is showing the way that his love is greater than all else love in that he lays down his life for his friends. His love is perfect. It's always genuine. It's without wavering. It doesn't shake. It doesn't ebb and flow. It's without weakness. Jesus' love for his people is perfect. He is totally committed to the good of his people. And in his love... Jesus purposes that his people would suffer. This loving person, perfect in his love, purposes, plans, chooses for his people to pass through suffering. If you're a Christian, you have to grapple with that. One thing that comes over in Redeemer Lane over and over again is God's sovereignty over all things, including our suffering. And the reason that we bring this up over and over again is because the Bible brings us up over and over again. The Bible wants to equip you to know before you suffer how to think about the goodness and love of God in the midst of suffering. One of the most dangerous things about Christian platitudes and teaching that says God never wants his people to suffer. He doesn't want you to have to go through something like this. Is that when all of a sudden you do suffer, you don't know how to handle it. You don't know what to say about God. You think God must not love you or God must not care about you or God has become an enemy to you and you're not able in the midst of all the pain and all the suffering to say with Job, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Bible wants to equip you to walk through pain and suffering and never doubt God's love and never doubt God's goodness. In John 11, Jesus, the most loving man who ever existed, intentionally purposes that people whom he loves would pass through suffering, both physical and emotional suffering. Why would Jesus do that? Because he wants them to see his glory. The most loving thing that Jesus can do for his people is to give you a clear vision of who he is 
in all his love, in all his goodness, in all his power. And he's willing to purpose that you go through pain so that you can see it more clearly. That's what John 11 teaches. And to see this, we're going to look at three points. First, we're going to look at the purpose of suffering. Second, we're going to look at the peace of following Jesus. And then third, we're going to look at the priority of faith. So the purpose of suffering, the peace of following Jesus, and the priority of faith. So let's look first at the purpose of suffering. John begins this chapter by introducing us to people that in the Gospel of John, we actually haven't met yet. But these people have been very close with Jesus. Look at verse 1 again. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. We haven't seen that yet. We're going to see that next chapter in John 12. It was Mary whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Verse 3 calls Lazarus, he whom you love. Verse 5 says that Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Throughout the Gospel of John, we've already seen Jesus show love to complete strangers. He has shown love to a Samaritan woman, treating her with dignity, a person who ethnically would be seen as the wrong person to talk to, and Jesus crosses that and shows her love. It shocks her. Jesus has shown love and care to beggars, sick people, the people you stay away from. He has entered into their world and shown them love. And here, he receives a request from someone who aren't shocked by his love. They know his love. That's how they describe their relationship with him is one of love. They know that he loves them, and they know that he has the power to heal. We see that in verse 21. Martha says, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother Lazarus would not have died. Lazarus is going to die. And Martha knows that Jesus could have done something about it, that he has the power to heal. Now here they send a message to Jesus, because Jesus is not with them. They're in Bethany, which is close to Jerusalem. If you remember, last chapter we saw Jesus leave Jerusalem because the people were trying to kill him and his time had not yet come to die. He leaves Jerusalem and he goes out to where John the Baptist had first been ministering, which is probably in a region called Batanea or Bashan. It's about a four days journey, a long ways away from where Mary and Martha and Lazarus are. Jesus is a long way off, but if you've been walking with Jesus through the Gospel of John, you know that geography doesn't matter to Jesus. It's not a barrier. In John 4, an official comes and asks Jesus to come and to heal his son, and Jesus speaks a word from miles away, and at that very moment, the boy is healed. Jesus could have received this message from Mary and from Martha, and he could have said, Lazarus is healed. And he would have been healed. He had the capacity to heal Lazarus. That is clear. In verse 4, Jesus gives us the purpose of Lazarus' illness. Look at verse 4. When Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. 
Now we saw Lazarus is going to die. But it doesn't lead to death. It is for the glory of God. So that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Death is not the final result of Lazarus's illness. It's not the end goal. Lazarus's death is like a petrol station on the side of the road. It's a stopping point. But the journey will keep going. His resurrection isn't the end goal of his illness. What's the end goal of Lazarus's illness? What's it going to lead to? The glory of God. The purpose, the telos, the end of Lazarus's illness is that God would be glorified through Jesus being glorified. Think about it. This is stunning when you stop. Lazarus was sick for the glory of God. Lazarus's illness occurred and it's not that Jesus responded to it, something that he did not have a purpose for. The purpose of the illness was that Jesus would heal him. That's why he became sick. The purpose of his suffering is the glory of Jesus. This is just like John 9. We saw this. There's a lot of connections to John 9 and John 11. In John 9, we meet a man who is born blind from birth. And the disciples are going through and they say, who sinned? This guy clearly did something wrong. Or his parents did something wrong. And that's why he was born blind. And Jesus says, that's not it at all. He says, it is not that this man sinned. This is verse 3 of John 9. It's not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. God purposed that a man would be born blind. God purposed that a man would turn into a beggar so that he could display his works in him. God purposed that Lazarus would get sick. God purposed that Mary and Martha would have to endure the emotional pain of caring for a dying brother. And God purposed this so that Jesus would be glorified. Your understanding of suffering, if you're going to have a biblical understanding of suffering, it has to account for this. That God does things like this. He purposes it. It's no accident. It is his plan. In John, the Gospel of John makes this very clear. Jesus receives the news of Lazarus' sickness and then waits two days before leaving so that he could show up four days after Lazarus is dead. He wants it to be very clear. This man is dead. Dead, dead. Completely dead. No life left in him. Look at verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Lazarus' death and their suffering was no accident. Jesus wanted Lazarus to die so that Jesus' glory would be displayed. I said that word wanted on purpose. Jesus is not passive. He's not merely allowing for something to happen. Now, Jesus does not actively do evil, but he does actively purpose and plan. He is not responding to events like, oh, this is happening. How do I change this for good? 
He is purposefully doing things. Later on, Jesus even says that he was glad that he was not there. This doesn't mean, though, hear me, this doesn't mean that Jesus delights in the pain. Or that Jesus wants you to feel pain for the sake of pain. Lamentations 3 says that God does not afflict from the heart. But God does delight, and Jesus does delight in the outcome of our pain, and what our pain can lead to, and that is seeing him for who he truly is, and trusting him for who he truly is. How many of you kids in the room have broken a bone? Any of you? Have you broken a bone? Luke's broken a bone. It's all that hand. Right? When you break a bone, let's say you're playing with your sibling and you fall and you break your bone, what's the first thing you're going to do? You're probably going to cry. That's the first thing. Then you're going to go and you're going to tell your parents. What are your parents going to do? Well, they'll probably touch it a little bit or do something to try and figure out, all right, is this just a normal, I cried and I need to kind of get over it? Or is something actually serious here? And in their poking and prodding, it, it may hurt a little bit. Then what they'll probably do is once they determine that it's broken, that it's at least serious, they'll probably get a, a tea towel, right? In my case, it was a fruit-covered tea towel. And they'll wrap it around your arm and your neck, and they'll put you in a sling. And it'll probably hurt when it first goes in there because your arm's resting against it. They're causing you pain. Then they'll drive you to the doctor. The doctor will poke and prod and turn it so you can get an x-ray, and then it'll straighten it and stiffen it. I always get nervous talking about medical stuff in this room because everyone can always correct me. But they'll probably cause some pain. And your parents are doing that to you on purpose. The doctor is doing that to you on purpose. They want to do this movement. Now, they don't want to cause you pain. But if they said the main thing that we need to do is make sure that you don't feel pain, then your, your bone would never heal. It would not ever do what it's supposed to do. They use pain in order to determine what's going on. They use pain in order to make sure that they're setting things correctly. Your parents are glad that the doctor is doing that. They are actively doing that. They're doing it for your good, for your long-term good. This is how it is with Jesus. In a fallen world, the doctors can get it wrong. Parents can get it wrong. God never gets it wrong. Everything that he wants to happen will happen. His pain that he purposes is never without good for you if you are in Jesus. When he purposes that his people would walk through suffering, his plan is sure and the good outcome is secure. In verse 7, we see Jesus' interaction with his disciples. It shifts to see Jesus interacting with his disciples. And this is our second point, the peace of following Jesus. Verse 7, after this, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. Jesus waits two days to make sure that Lazarus is dead. That's what verse 14 says. Then tells his disciples that they're going back to Judea. And how did his disciples respond? His disciples respond the way probably all of us would respond, with fear. Jesus just had to leave there in their mind because people were trying to kill him. 
And the disciples are thinking, we, we just got out. Like, let's give us a little bit of break, let things settle down, then maybe we'll be able to go back in. Look at verse 8. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? In their mind, they just got clear of the danger. And now Jesus is putting them right back into it. The disciple Thomas gives us exactly what they're afraid of. He says, we're going to die. When Jesus says, let's go, Thomas puts on a brave face, says, verse 16, let's go also, that we may die with him. Jesus responds to this understandable fear with an image. Look at verse 9. He answered them, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. It's a little bit of a surprising way to respond to the disciples' fear. What's Jesus saying with this? What is he trying to get at with this image? Jesus is the light of the world. If you look at the way light is used in the Gospel of John, it almost always refers to Jesus and the work of Jesus. Jesus is saying that the way in which you are safest is by being with the light and by having the light with you and the light in you. The disciples are with Jesus. And that means that if they go with him, they are safe with him. If they don't want to stumble, then they should follow him. Avoiding Judea is not the path to safety. They think that if they can, just from a worldly perspective, avoid danger, they'll be safe. And Jesus says, that's not what makes us safe. What makes us safe forever is by being with me. It's by walking with the light. Staying clear of physical danger is not going to do it ultimately. Being with Jesus is what keeps them safe. There is a great peace in following Jesus. I mentioned this to our Bible study. I mean, the, the disciples are understandably struggling. I mean, I can't imagine having people want to kill me. If I have an awkward meeting the next day, I feel anxious about it. Let alone, oh, hey, those guys were trying to stone us, not once, not twice, but multiple times. Let's go back there. They're understandably fear, fearful, and yet Jesus is giving them peace. And he's giving them a peace that only Jesus can give. It's not peace the way the world can give. It's a peace that says people can hate you and you can sleep at night if you're with Jesus. It's a peace that says that the evil one can attack you and you can rest with Jesus because you're safe with him. You can suffer and struggle and know that as long as you are following Jesus, you are safe. There's a kind of a cliche saying, at least in my culture, the safest place to be is in God's will. That's absolutely true. That if you are following Jesus, then you need not fear like the disciples. Follow me, Jesus says, and you'll be safe. This is peace that the world cannot give. This does not mean that we won't suffer. Lazarus died. Every one of these disciples, with the exception of 
the one who betrayed him, Judas, are going to follow Jesus after his resurrection, and they will suffer greatly unto death. But the peace that Jesus gives is a peace that allows for you to do that because it, you know that there's something greater on the other side. But the disciples don't understand what Jesus is saying. Verse 11, after saying these things, Jesus said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. You can almost imagine kind of hope in their voice. Like, whoa, it was only sleep. He'll get better. That's great. We don't have to go after all. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. This is our third point, the priority of faith. The priority of faith. The disciples are still looking for an excuse to not go into danger. Jesus tells them plainly, though, that Lazarus has died. The only way in which Lazarus is going to wake up is if Jesus goes to raise him from the dead. And then Jesus says something that I think is the key to understanding this entire section. And that is verse 14. Let me reread it. Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Why would Jesus stay two days after getting word that Lazarus was ill? Why would Jesus put Lazarus through physical pain and suffering? Why would he put Mary and Martha and the disciples through emotional pain and suffering? Why does he do this purposefully? Because he wants them to believe in him. The way in which God will be glorified through the Son is by people putting all of their hope and all of their trust and all of their life in his hands and saying, you, Lord, are my refuge and my strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. I trust you. I'm not trying to keep one backup plan from you as a safety net. I am placing all of my hope in you, Jesus. The way in which God the Father will be glorified is through God the Son being glorified as people repent from their sins and their sense of independence and run into his arms. Only Jesus can keep us eternally safe. Only Jesus can bring us eternal happiness. Only Jesus can care for us walk with us, provide for us, raise us from our spiritual deadness and our physical deadness and satisfy us with his presence forever. That's why he puts Mary and Martha through this. That's why he put Lazarus through this. That's why he put the disciples through this. The best thing for Mary, Martha, Lazarus, disciples, you and me is for us to taste and see that the Lord is good in Jesus. And Jesus wants that for us. I skipped over this when we first uh, were in this section, but there's a very surprising word that connects verse 5 with verse 6. The word so, or therefore. 
Jesus loved Mary and Martha. And so, therefore, he stayed two days longer. Because he loved them, therefore, he did not go to them immediately. Because he loved them, therefore, he allowed for them to experience suffering. Because he loved them, therefore, he did not raise Lazarus in that moment. It was his love that motivated his desire for them to walk through death so that they would learn to cast themselves fully on him as the resurrection and the life. Because that's the best gift that Jesus could give them. The Apostle Paul learned the same lesson. This is not just a John 11 thing. This is an all-over-the-Bible thing. In 2 Corinthians 1, Paul is talking about his suffering that he experienced. He says this, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the very sentence of death. Afflicted, burdened, despairing of life itself, receiving the sentence of death. That's how Paul describes what he walked through. Why? Why did that happen? For what purpose did he go through that? Verse 9. But that was to make us not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. By tasting God's goodness in the midst of pain and seeing God provide and be his strength and be his life and be his hope, the Apostle Paul isn't just strengthened for a one-time event. The Apostle Paul is strengthened for a lifetime of faithfully following Jesus. He says, God brought me through this. And I'm going to trust him the next time I walk through this. And I'm going to trust him the next time I walk through this. Paul was not walking through this into riches and glory and earthly prosperity. He was walking through this into greater pain and greater suffering and a greater vision of the glory of Jesus in the midst of it. To say, whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there is nothing that I desire besides you. If you're here this morning... And if you're not a Christian, then you need to know that God deeply loves his people. So many people walk through suffering and assume that God must hate them. That if God were really loving, then he would not allow for us to go through pain. God does not delight in your pain. Jesus knows, as we keep reading in this chapter, we'll see this. Jesus knows that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He says that. I go to awaken him. And yet when he gets there, he weeps. He weeps with Mary and Martha. Jesus loves his people so much that he is going to die for them. He is going to show that he doesn't just have resurrection power, but that he is the resurrection and the life when he dies to pay for your sins and to rise from the dead so that you don't have to die, but that you can live with him. Jesus does not delight in your pain, but Jesus does know that the way in which you will be happiest 
is by seeing that this world is not enough. That the comforts, the success, the healing and ease that this world has pales in comparison to the comfort and glory of being with Jesus forever. He is the gift. He is the resurrection and the life. He is your greatest good. Even death itself is worth walking through in order to experience that. The most loving thing that Jesus can do for you is to show you his glory. That's what you need most, and that's what he is utterly committed to. I want to close this morning by getting really specific on how this plays out, how this can really help us, how this moves from a story that happens in John 11 into what's going to happen later this afternoon or later this week. Imagine with me that you're stuck in an unhappy marriage. Your spouse is bitter towards you. They're distant. You don't feel like there's any love or happiness You know that God calls you to persevere in showing love to your spouse. You know that you are called not to leave the marriage. But you don't know how you can continually, day in and day out, put up with it. How you can walk through this rejection, walk through these tears, walk through this grief without losing hope. How does this passage help you today? There is a joy in God that runs deeper than any earthly pleasure. That's what this passage reminds us of. It would be wonderful to have a happy marriage. But it is more wonderful to taste and see that the Lord is good in an unhappy marriage than to have a happy marriage without a sight of Jesus. If you could choose a happy marriage and know Jesus over an unhappy marriage and Jesus with you, then you are trading a million dirhams for a couple fills. As you experience rejection, the reality that Jesus will never leave you or forsake you tastes sweeter. It tastes sweeter to your soul because you recognize, I know what it feels like to be rejected. And the thought of someone never leaving me amazing. As you go to bed thinking, I can't do this anymore, and you wake up being kept and strengthened by Jesus to pour yourself out for someone who does not reciprocate, you recognize the way in which Jesus himself did that for you. We love because he first loved us. We were not reciprocating his love. He was initiating He is the one who goes after us. His promises become sweeter to you. His comfort becomes greater. He has not promised you a happy marriage. But he has promised that he will be with you, loving you, comforting you, keeping you, even in an unhappy marriage. He is the perfect spouse who will one day wed you to himself and will never let you go. And if in his grace he chooses to restore your marriage, then you will see his glory in a fresh way that you wouldn't have had you not walked through the pain and the brokenness 
you will know even deeper the power of his resurrection. That's why it's so important to hold on to what we see in John 11. If Jesus merely said, I don't want you to go through this, I wouldn't ever have you walk through this, and then you walk through it, you have no tools in which to fight for faith. The only tool you have is unbelief. Saying, God must not love me. He must not care about me. But if you see that Jesus cares so deeply for you that he wants your eternal good and he is with you in the midst of the pain, walking with you, supporting you, strengthening you so that you can see him all the more clearly, now you have a weapon to fight for faith. Now you have something to cast your hope in and to trust. Would you walk through the darkness in order to see the brightness of Jesus more clearly? Would you walk through the valley of the shadow of death in order to know that Jesus himself is the life? He loves you in your suffering, and he loves you through your suffering. And there is coming a day in which he promises that he will wipe away every tear. So there will be no more pain and no more sorrow and no more suffering because Jesus bore our sorrows on his back as he went to the cross. He is able to comfort us perfectly because he himself is comfort. That's the good news of John 11. And that is our hope for today. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that Jesus, you are the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in you, though he die, yet shall he live. We thank you, Jesus, that you love us so much. Your love is a perfect love. Would we taste and see that love today? We pray this in your name. Amen.